I don't know if you're <clears throat> like I am. I can, uh, I, I'm a big uh, sports fan. I think some of you know that. I've talked a lot about basketball and how I used to coach basketball. But I also went to Texas A&M, and so I'm a big football fan. I, was ingr- I didn't have a choice from the time I could remember. Everything stopped at my house to watch the Aggies when they played football. And, and over the years, there's been some very uh, tough games to swallow. That's with like any sports fan. But I remember very vividly, Sadly, about 10 years ago, uh, rushing home to watch a game that I was DVRing. And so I was about 30 minutes behind and I got home. And, and you got to know this about me when I watch. It doesn't matter how bad the Aggies are playing, I'm always kind of optimistic. This is the play. They're going to turn it around. This is the time. It's going to get better. This is the play. And so I rush home. Uh, I remember this game very vividly and I'm watching it on my DVR. So you're fast forwarding it through commercials and timeouts and stuff. By the time I caught up to when the game was live... It was the end of the first quarter, and A&M was down 35 to nothing. And I'm still sitting there going, okay, if they just get a touchdown, if they just get one going here, maybe things can turn around. And so I sit there, and I watch the game, and I keep watching, and I keep watching. At the end of the third quarter, it is 77 to nothing. Worst loss in the history of A&M. Gracefully, mercifully, I should say, the other team started kind of taking a knee and diving into the line towards the end of the game, and it ended 77 to nothing. But I kept waiting, kept hoping, maybe it's going to turn, maybe things are going to get better. Oh, and by the way, that was Oklahoma that beat them. Last year, A&M played Oklahoma, and they destroyed them. So just, just so you're clear, last year they came back and they got them really good. So, uh, but uh, in that game, it was terrible. I mean, it was just bad to worse to worse to worse, and finally it ended. And a lot of ways, that's the book of Judges. We've been saying over and over, this is a downward spiral. And it gets worse and worse. And the more the people rebel and the more these things happen, it's really just kind of steps down each chapter. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And really, you keep thinking, well, there's going to be some glimmer of hope. There's going to be some reprisal here. There's going to be something that kind of turns. And then you get to the end of the book and it's over. And so we're going to look at the end of the book today, and that's just fair warning. Right? It's, it doesn't really get better. It just keeps going down. But there's a lot of things we can take away from it and we can learn as we look. And as we get to these last four chapters, there's a new phrase introduced. I've talked a lot about how we see repeated phrases in Judges. It talks a lot about how the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, and that's repeated over and over Uh, It tells us that the people did what was right in their own eyes. That is, they ignored God. They did what they thought. But there's this phrase that shows up in the last four chapters of Judges that gets repeated four times. And it says this over and over. There was no king in Israel. And it says that over and over. And it's almost bracketed statements on these last few chapters. There was no king in Israel. And then that's the way the book ends. That's the very last thing it says. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I want us to think about that statement as we go down this downward spiral and we kind of hit the bottom, this gruesome, ugly bottom that it is at the end of Judges. And that's kind of the statement over it, that there was no king in Israel. But the truth is there was a king in Israel. They just had forgotten their king. They had decided that they would ignore their king. That's really what happens. Uh, it's, It's similarly what Paul will say Uh, Some 1,200 years later in Romans chapter 1, when he says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
And then it says in verse 21, but although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, Paul in Romans 1 is talking about how we can see clearly about God in creation. We know who he is because of the way God has revealed it to us in his creation. That's true with Israel. That's true with all people. That's true of the time of Judges. But more than that, they had seen God deliver them into this land and give them this land, take them out of slavery in Egypt. They had a heritage of things that their ancestors had seen so clearly. But just like it says in Romans 1, they decided to ignore God and they became futile in their thinking. And so what I want us to think about today is is what happens when we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we forget our king. That's really what they're doing here. There was no king in Israel. There was a king in Israel. They just had forgotten him. They had chosen to ignore him. And so the way we're going to look at these last few chapters is just snapshots of what happens when that's the case. And again, I'll warn you, it's not pretty. Some of the harshest stories in the Bible are in these last few chapters of Judges, and it's ugly. It's a harsh reality of what happens when we reject our king. And let me just remind you as we sit here this morning, because next week we'll come together and we'll celebrate and it'll be what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before, the week before the crucifixion when Jesus will go to the cross. And as he will come into Jerusalem, the people will be ready to crown him as king. They're so excited and they want to make Jesus their king, but they want to make him an earthly king. And Jesus has bigger ideas. I'm not coming to be your earthly king. I'm coming to be the king of all creation. I'm coming to lay down my life to become the sacrifice, to give you eternal life and what I'm going to do for you, and then I'm going to ascend to my throne as king over all. That's our king. That's the king we're talking about that we often forget. And so when we think about this, yes, it's true for Israel. They have forgotten their king that rescued them and brought them into this land, and they've totally forgotten them. But everything we look at here is true of our world today and oftentimes our own lives when we forget our king, Jesus. So I want you to see that correlation as we walk through these several snapshots that we see. And so we're going to move through several chapters. We're going to look at a few verses here and there, but we'll kind of walk through the big stories. But before we do, let's pray. And then we're going to look at that together, starting in Judges chapter 17. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for the ways you guide us, correct us, rebuke us. Uh, encourage us through your word. I pray that you do all those things this morning, that you would show us uh, our great need for you. And then you would show us how you meet that need. I pray that we would leave here encouraged, excited about who you are, the ways that you're moving, the ways that you love us. We pray that you would just teach us now through your spirit. You tell us that you are here and you are living and you're active. And we ask that you would move freely in this place and apply this to our hearts and our lives this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're going to start in chapter 17. Kind of a weird story, just real briefly. It's fairly short. But what you see is is a young man who steals from his mother. She then curses the thief, not knowing it's him. And so he goes, oh no, I better take this back and give this back to her. And so he does, and what she promptly does fits perfectly with judges. And she says, oh, my money's back. 
I've got it back, so now I'm going to make me an idol that I can worship. And so she does. She makes an idol in her house and she begins to worship in her house. It then tells us that her husband by the name of Micah, a young man's traveling through their town and he happens to be a Levite. The tribe of Levite of Levi was the ones that God had set apart to be priests. And he goes, ah, perfect. A Levite. I will take him and make him a priest in my house. And so he does. And he takes this guy and he says, I will pay you and you can be our priest in our house and you can facilitate this worship to these idols that we've just made. Right? That's a perfect picture of what's going on in Judges. Kind of a weird story, but it's just sitting right in there. And then all of a sudden uh, we move into chapter 18. And what happens is the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, some guys are moving through the town. They, they, they see this idols that they have and the priests they have and they go, oh, that'd be good for us. And so they swing through there and they take the priest. And they take the idols and they say, we'll take that for us. And they go and they conquer a town and they set up their own city with idol worship and their new priest. That's basically chapter 17 and 18. You just see this idolatry of false worship doing all the things that God told them not to do. And it's an ugly picture that you see. And I want us to think about just that unfolding of the story in chapter 17 and 18. And there's three things, three snapshots in those three, those two chapters that I want us to see. They're directly related to this this phrase that's repeated over and over in Judges. And there was no king in Israel. There was a king and they had forgotten their king. And these things that happen in chapter 17 and chapter 18 are a clear picture of what happens when we forget our king. And so I want us just to think about what happens here with with when our king is forgotten. And the first thing I want you to see in chapter 17 This woman gets her stuff back. She gets her wealth back. She's so excited. And what she does is she constructs an idol to worship. And the first thing I would say to you is that when we forget our king, the very first thing we do is we look for some sort of thing, some sort of idol to replace them in our lives. We'll turn to something else when God is removed and we'll seek to worship something else. And you see that so clearly in this story. She literally says, I'm going to now make me an idol that I can worship. Now, when we talk about idols and idol worship, it's easy to read this story and and think, well, we don't do that. Don't worship. uh, I don't carve an image that I then bow down and worship. I don't do that. But the truth is, we all do that in different ways. I talk about this frequently. I mention this because it's important. It so goes to the heart of so many things that we get wrong when we're seeking to follow God. But an idol is simply anything in our lives that becomes the ultimate thing. Any, I should say that anything other than God that becomes an ultimate thing. Idols can be very good things uh, in our lives, that good gifts that God has given, but they become idols when they become the ultimate thing. And what happens is when we remove God from the picture, then these other things become, uh, start to slide into his place. And we do it all the time in all different ways. You see it so clearly in judges. It's so obvious because of the culture surrounding them. They literally worshiped idols. They literally carved images and started to worship those things. And you can go, yes, that is idolatry. It's very obvious when you see that. It can be so much more subtle, though, in our own hearts. But it happens the same when we remove God from his throne, when we forget our king, when he starts to get kind of pushed off to the side, something else will start to slip into his place in our hearts. 
I remember reading a few years ago a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. And the whole book is about idolatry. The idolatry of our heart and the things that we begin to put in God's place. And I remember reading the book and there were a lot of things he said. And I went, yeah, and some of them kind of hit you to go, oh, yeah, I do that. And he talks about different ways. But uh, as it often is, uh, we can be uh, blinded to our own idols in our own heart. Often, oftentimes that happens. We'll begin to think, well, that's that's not really me. But, oh, so and so sure does that. It's easy to see it in other people. And I remember reading that book by Tim Keller and kind of nodding along and going, yeah, so and so does this. And so and so, you know, you're thinking like, oh, yeah, all these other people that have these issues. And I remember getting to the chapter and he talks about money. Pretty obvious one. Money can become an idol in our life. We get our worth by our our stuff and our things and the things that we have. Get a new car and I feel better that I have a new car. So that makes me feel better about myself. That means it's becoming an idol in my life. Things like that. And as I read through, I was kind of nodding along. Same thing going, yes, yes, that's the case. But then he gets towards the end. He talks about how when you're very frugal and you don't spend a whole lot, that can become an idol in your life. And all of a sudden, I went, whoa, wait a second. Kind of, kind of hit me a little bit. And I went, wait. And, and so what he started to say is not that it's wrong to save money or it's not that it's wrong to be smart in how you spend your money. We should be. But when you start to get your security, I'm okay because I have a certain amount of money in my bank account. Then all of a sudden my functional idol of my heart is becoming how much money I have in my bank account. And it is so subtle. You can think, oh, well, I'm just being a good steward and I'm just keep. And that may be true. But if you're resting, if the only way you can rest is I have this much money in my bank account, then it's taking a place that's too, it's starting to ascend over God. You see that? Because instead of resting and that God is sovereign and he's in control and he's the one working and moving, I start to rest and then I've got this much money. And it is so subtle in our hearts. But the truth is, when we remove God as king in our life, things like that start to creep in. I start to only be able to rest when everything's in order, which means I'm not really trusting God. And so that is so subtle in our hearts. But the truth is the same. Here we see it so up front. They actually carved image and worship them. It's very subtle in our own hearts. I think it was John Calvin who famously said that that uh, our idol, our Our hearts are idol factories. We can make an idol out of anything. And it's so subtle in so many ways because a lot of times it's good things. But that's the first thing I want you to see. You see it so clearly here is they carve an idol. They grab themselves a priest and they begin to worship in that way. But that leads us right to the second one. Look at chapter 17 with me if you have a Bible or if you want to follow along in the pew Bibles that look like this. Chapter 17 is page 140. On the Bibles that look like this in the pew. And so listen to what it says in chapter 17, verse 13. Now, this is they they've grabbed this guy to be their priest. This guy, Mike, has grabbed the Levite to be his priest. They set up worship in their house. And then listen to what he says in verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Think about what he just said. Now things are going to go well because I've got this guy to to be the priest in my house. And the picture that I want you to see is when we begin to replace God, when we begin to forget God is our king, we end up with worshiping God out of misunderstandings. We begin to worship God in ways that he has never told us to worship him. And what you see here, you see the same thing in chapter 18. 
is the tribe comes through and they go, oh, there is a priest. Let's take him. I think there's a lot of the same under uh, the way that they're operating. It's we need this priest and we'll be blessed if we bring him with us. And you see this picture of, of what you see here is if I do this and if I set these things up in this way, if I get this priest and I have these idols and I do this, then God's going to bless me. We do the same thing in all different ways today. It's our heart. Our heart default goes into this. And what it is, is our heart default goes into, if I do A, B, and C, then God will bless me. If I do well enough and I perform well enough, then God will love me. It's exactly what he says here. I've got myself this priest, now everything's going to be great. And we can so easily fall into that. We can do the same today. We can get up and have a great morning of devotion with God, and we get up and we read our Bible And you sing songs and you do these things and then you kind of have a spring in your step and you go, now God's going to bless me because I did these things. Now God's really pleased with me because I came to church this morning. And and that's, again, very subtle in how it starts to creep in, but that's a misunderstanding of who God is. What we're doing is we're operating under God blesses me based on my performance. God loves me based on how well I do these things. And that's so easy to slip in. And the reason is our sinful nature. Our sinful nature wants to see the world is is focused and surrounded on me, that I'm the sinner. God blesses me because of what I do. But the truth is God loves you because he loves you. God's working. He's doing these things because of who he is. He blesses you. Yes, there's blessings that come from following him, practical things that happen, but you don't earn God's love by how well you do. That is wonderful news, by the way, that God's love is not dependent on how good you did today. God's love's not dependent on if you had your quiet time or you didn't have your quiet time. But when we remove God as king, we, we, we start to make him this uh, genie. If I do these things, then you'll do these things for me. It's kind of like a, uh, an exchange. If I get myself a Levite as priest in my house, then God will bless me. And so it's kind of a, a back and forth. But that's not the way God is. That's not who our king is. Our king is sovereign over all things. He needs nothing from us. He gives us his grace and his love because of that's who he is. And when we start to make it what we do for him, we're missing it. Not only that, I want you to think about what's underneath that. If I say I do these things and then God blesses me, right? I'll do these and then he'll bless me. What I'm really saying is I want to use God to get some blessings. God becomes a means to the end, not the end. That means he's not our king anymore. He's just our errand boy who does things for us. God, I'll do these things and then you do these things for me. That's exactly what happens here in chapter 17. I've got myself a Levite priest. Now things will go great. And so easily we can slip into that. And so I'd say the second thing is when we remove God as king, what happens is we begin to worship him out of a misunderstanding. We begin to worship him in a way that we're earning our worth before God, which is not the way God works. It's not what the Bible tells us. It's not the way God has revealed himself. It's not his character. And so we miss it that way. There's a third thing, though, in these chapters, too. Not only do we worship out of a misunderstanding, but look at chapter 18, what happens. 
So this man Micah has got this priest in his house, but then the new tribe comes through and it's a bunch of guys and they go to the priest, the young priest, who's now the priest in this house for one family. And they go, you should come with us. Come on, we'll take you and you'll go with us. And look at what happens in chapter 18. It's in verse 19. And they said to him, now this is the tribe of Dan, these guys coming through, these warriors, and they say to the priest, they said to him, the priest, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us. And be to us as a a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest. uh, They they ask, is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be the priest of a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and he went along with the people. So what I want you to see and think about here. When, they, uh, when, when we remove the king, there's no king in Israel. When we forget the king, we forget who God is, we begin to get our identity by how well we're doing. We get our identity by how successful we think we are or how successful people perceive we are. They say, come with us and you can be the priest of all these people instead of this one family. And his heart was glad. All right. I just got a big promotion. That's what happens when we start to forget God and we get our self-worth from how successful we are. You see that correlation? The Bible tells us that God loves you completely and totally because of what Christ has done. You can't earn any more of his love. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you're loved as much as you will ever be loved, which is completely and totally. But yet we forget that. And then when we get a promotion, we go, oh, look at what I've done. Come walk a little taller. Look at how good I'm doing. Look at what I've accomplished. And we start to get our self-worth from other things other than God and our relationship with Him. The same is true on the flip side of that. Maybe we get passed over for a promotion. Maybe we lose a job. And then suddenly we're crushed. Our identity becomes so tied to what we perceive as being successful that we let that define us. That's what happens when we forget our king. We get our self-worth from other things as opposed to from God. That's what you see even with this priest here. He's really pumped. He's excited. I just got a big promotion. And it's not because I don't believe it's because of now I'm going to go minister to more people because he's not really ministering to people. He's false idols. He's not really pointing people to the true God. It's a mess. But what happens oftentimes is, is our identity is so tied to what we perceive we're doing. And again, that one goes back to the one right before that. Where I said we worship God out of a misunderstanding. Our misunderstanding is that we earn love from God by how well we're doing. And so we worship that way. I'll do this for you, God. You do this for me. That overflows right into our job, our life, our identity. God will be pleased with me if I do this. I was working on this sermon this week. And I've just been thinking about this very idea on Thursday, and I met this guy named Tony on Thursday. He's a really sweet guy, and he started telling me about this homeless ministry that he was getting to be involved in, uh, I believe it was in Cartersville. And he starts telling me all about this, and he's really excited about it. And he said, yeah, for 15 years I've wanted to be uh, a part of a homeless ministry and do this, and now I'm getting this opportunity. And I was like, that's awesome, man. That's great. And he's telling me all about this, and he's really exciting. And then right in the middle he says, Yeah, for the longest time, I have felt like such a failure. 
And now I feel so good because this thing is starting to happen. And now God is really going to be pleased with me. My heart broke for him. His desire of wanting to help and to serve others and to do those things, I think God's given that to him. And God's working in his life and he's bringing those about. But his motivation is backwards. If Tony knows Jesus, if he knows the king, God already loves him completely and totally. And he wasn't upset with him for these 15 years. And now he's happy. He already loved him completely and totally from the beginning. And it's not that he suddenly is pleased with him. But that's where our heart goes. That's what happens when we remove the king from the equation. I think that's what's happening here, even with the priest. And so what happens is when we remove it, we get our identity from other things. Now, I want to move to the last few chapters. That's 17 and 18, 19, 20 and 21. Yeah, we're going to cover all these (laughs) quickly, briefly. Chapter 19, let me just uh, warn you. I've been saying over and over that we go down and down and down and down in Judges. I feel like we hit the bottom of the barrel in chapter 19. We hit bottom. It's an ugly story. There's no other way to say it than that. It's kind of like going into the, the heart of darkness. Chapter 19 is hideous. And the story is simply that a, a Levite man is going to seek his wife, who is his concubine, which means she's kind of his wife, she's kind of his slave. His second or third wife, he took her. And so it's this wife is unfaithful to him and he goes to find her. She's at her father's house and he goes to reclaim her and he spends time with her and he gets her back. And then they're ready to go home and they begin to travel home. And as they do, they're on their way home, but they're not going to make it all the way. And they're going to stop in a town. They stop in the town of Gibeah. And it's ruled, uh, inhabited by the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is God's people that he's given the land and they stop in this town. And what happens is they're in the city center and they don't know where to stay. And an elderly man comes to them and says, hey, you've got to come stay at my house. You can't stay here. By the way, the connotation is it's not safe to stay in the city center, which that in itself is a commentary on how bad things are in Israel. You can't stay here because this is not safe. And then we quickly find out why it's not safe as they go to the old man's house. What we see, and I'll be honest, it's a it's almost a perfect parallel to what happens in Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. I think that's purposeful. I think the author is showing us that Israel now looks like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what happens when you forget your king. And it's ugly. And what happens is the people descend on the house where this man is concubine or staying. And they say, bring the man out that we can have sex with him. This is the men of the town. This is the tribe of Benjamin. This is Israelites. And that's what they do. And they show up and they persist and they persist. And then what happens is is chilling. If you look in chapter 19 and verse 25 says, but the men would not listen to him. The men would not listen to the old man's house they're staying in. He's saying, please don't do this. Don't do this. And it says they wouldn't listen to him. And then it says, so the man sees this is talking about the Levite, the guy who's traveling through, seized his concubine, his wife, and he made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where the master was until it was light. And as her master rose up in the morning, I mean, even that, he went and got a good night's sleep. He rises 
in the morning. And when he opened the door of the house, he went out to go on his way. And behold, his concubine was laying at the door of the house and her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. When he entered his home, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb from limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who said it, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. And so what you see in chapters 20 and 21 is this leads to essentially a civil war. The tribes of Israel are disgusted by this and they descend and they almost wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. They come this close to wiping them out. And then what you see is the people cry out and they say in chapter 21, why has this happened in Israel? They're distraught. And then the book ends and it says there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But you're waiting on it to get better. And then that's how it ends. And he goes, so what in the world do we take from that? Why did God uh, record this story for us in Scripture? What do we take from this picture? And so there's two things I want us to see just in those last two chapters. And there's a lot more we could say, but two things briefly that we see in those chapters And in chapter 19, what I think you see so clearly is when we forget our king, we we treat people like objects. See that so clearly in this story. From the Levite who would push his wife out to the men, to the men descending on the house that they could know this man, both sides all the way around, it is hideous. And it is a picture of what happens when the king is forgotten. Now you can say, well, we don't condone that. We don't condone brutal rape that ends in murder. No, we don't. Not even in our society today. We're appalled by that when we hear it, and we should be. But you can't tell me that we don't condone people as objects. All you have to do is turn on the TV. All you have to do is look at the way that we advertise today. You can't tell me we don't condone using people as objects. Pornographic industry in our country makes $14 billion a year. You can't tell me we don't condone people as objects. Because we do. We do it all the time. Oftentimes, almost just in the... We don't even think about it. Just ignore that. But it's everywhere around us, and it's the direct result of forgetting our king. It's an ugly story here. But the truth is, it's not really that far from where we are. As a country, as a world, we see that type of thing all the time. What about chapter 20 and 21? The people descend and they're angry and they're upset. And they say, how could this happen? Not realizing that it's happened because they've forgotten their king. Not realizing that it's happened because they just haven't followed all the things that God told them to do. And they descend and they go to war. And what happens is they almost wipe out Benjamin. And you go, well, what do you take from that? There's a couple things that kept coming to mind, but one in particular 
oftentimes today, the church of Jesus Christ right here in our country is known for what it's against more than what it's for. The only time you see unity in the tribes of Israel is because they're so angry over this heinous act. And they should be. Not saying they shouldn't be. But that's the only time they're unified. Instead of being unified and taken over by our great love for our king, oftentimes the church just becomes known for what we're angry about. We're so upset about this. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place to be. You should be upset about this. You should be absolutely appalled about this. But Jesus said, you'll know that they're my disciples by the way they love each other. You'll know who they are that are following me because of how much love they have for one another and for the world. But sadly, what often happens is the church is known for being really angry about certain things. Instead of our great love for one another. Sadly, I look at all these things, all these ways, all these things that you see bubble to the surface and happen when the king is forgotten. When there is no king. When we see that and you go, what is going on? And then you go, well, that's pretty much our world today. You see every one of these things in different ways in our world today. And so you go, well, what's the answer to that? What's the answer to them saying there was no king in Israel and everyone did right in their own eyes? What's the answer to people saying that today? And I say the answer to that is there is a king. There is a merciful and gracious sovereign king. There is a king. And he meets the need of every single one of these problems. Every single one of them. Everyone that you look at, whether it's idols that we construct in our hearts to worship him, Jesus, our king, when we see him for who he is, all other idols, all other things that vie for our attention take their rightful place and they don't stand a chance. We only put those things when we don't see him for who he is. But when we see him for who he is, those things pale in comparison. The answer is to look to our king, Jesus. It's the same thing when we don't worship the way that we ought. And we seek to earn our worth before God. You look to your king. You look to Jesus and you see your perfect king that came and laid his life down for you. Who took on your sin and he says, I love you this much. You don't earn your worth. I give it to you by grace. Don't you dare try to come to me out of earning your worth. I love you completely and totally. You look to your King Jesus and he answers the bad ways in which we worship. It's the same thing when we seek to get our identity from other things. When you know the king, you see that he answers your identity in every way that you are totally and completely valuable in his sight. And it doesn't have anything to do with the job you have or how well you do it or how well you don't do it or any of those things. He loves you completely and totally because of who he is and your identity is secure in him. The same is true when we think about using people as objects. When you see your king 
and you know who he is, then you realize that all people are made in his image and all are valuable in his sight. All are so valuable that he would come to earth and lay down his life. How dare we look at people as objects? They have value and worth because they are made in the image of the king. They are made in his image. And lastly, when we become divided and we only become united on how angry we are about certain things, we're forgetting how wonderful our king is. We should be a people that is known for being so overwhelmed by the grace of our God. That should be how people know us. Those are those people that love Jesus so much that they want to love people the way he loved them. That is the way we should be known. That is the answer to every single one of these problems. It's the answer to every problem in the book of Judges. That we've forgotten who our God is. And so our job as a people, the people of God, is to make much of him. To be so overwhelmed with who he is that we go out and we live differently. And we look differently. And we are so excited about who Jesus is. So excited about who our king is. And we have the wonderful privilege of getting to do that. Just for this breath. Just for this time that is our life. We get to proclaim the greatness of our king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you even for very difficult chapters like these at the end of Judges. That show us how clearly uh, awful our sin is and where it leads. How ugly it is when we forget you. But also that it reminds us of how great your grace and your love is. That you don't leave us in that, but you continue to pursue us. For that, we thank you. We thank you that you love us with a love that we can't even comprehend. I pray that we'd be people who are about that. We'd be agents of your love in this world for all the people that you've put right in front of us. That we glorify you and in all things and in all ways. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.